chapter 12 of Brown of Wamfrey's Pious and Letter Treatise Concerning Prayer, the answer of prayer. And we're going to be looking at the subject of chapter 12, which is mistakes, um, mistakes of God that are to be avoided in prayer. All of this, again, is um, with respect to John 14, 13, and 14, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Brown is <clears throat> going to raise a series of mistakes uh, that people make. Um, some of them, as we get into this, I'm, I wanna, I'm going to point out, some of them have actually been encouraged uh, by various ministers <clears throat> down through history. And, and uh, uh, these mistakes are... are Problematic at it at a number of levels. Um, we have to understand that <clears throat> many, if not most, of of the uh, mistakes that we're going to cover. To be mistaken about these things is uh, to fall into error uh, with respect very often to things that pertain to the second commandment. So these are um, very often things that either are overtly idolatrous mistakes or covertly uh, they are idolatrous or they tend to idolatrous thinking. Uh, so Brown wants us to be aware and... I, I think as we go through these, um, some of them, uh, you may say to yourself, well, I've, I've thought that way, or that, that's crossed my mind. And so he's not, um, he's not listing things just to, you know, be a nitpicker uh, when it comes to the, this doctrine of prayer. He's concerned... Uh, Knowing, as Calvin would say, you know, that our minds are idle factories. We, we're continually manufacturing idols. We're continually tending uh, in this direction of idolatry. We, are, we, you know, very often and naturally by nature because of our fallen nature, uh, we, we actually are much more likely to um, stretch ourselves in the direction of, of what is false and idolatrous than bend ourselves in the direction of the truth. Like, I mean, it's, it's our nature, our fallen nature, except, except by the grace of God, uh, you know, we, we would be that way all the time. So if, if we don't have an understanding, a proper understanding of this, then we're going to be much more liable, uh, even when we're consciously striving to follow God by His Spirit, we're still not going to have that necessary information. Uh, so these are, these are important things that He's going to list out for us. All right, we're going to begin with question 249 then. 
Um, and, and this is, uh, again, if we remember that the, the last chapter we were talking about the object of our invocation, which is God, then this chapter uh, is a natural follow-up, which is we want to avoid mistakes concerning God in our prayer. Right. So the first instruction to avoid mistakes of God in prayer that he gives is we, <coughs> we need to guard against mistaking thoughts and imaginations in our mind um, regarding the object of our invocation. <coughs> in other words, we have to be careful that we are not ready to entertain wrong thoughts of God. And he, he points out from the very beginning and what is said in Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29, God, our God, is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire, and he will not give his glory to another. Right, so he's, he's a jealous God in this respect. He wants our attention. And the attention that we pay to God in prayer, uh, he wants to be directed to him <clears throat> and not to some other. And so we, we, we need to be careful here. So with that in mind, he's going to set forth a series of rules. And... Um, <clears throat> Most of this chapter is, in fact, devoted to these rules. There are 13 rules he's going to give us uh, before he comes back to a couple of other mistakes, uh, or instructions, I should say, to avoid mistakes. <coughs> so, these 13 rules are really designed to keep us <coughs> from mistaken thinking, uh, from vain imaginations, from corrupt conceptions of the divinity. Now, before we get into them, <coughs> let me just reiterate something. Because our minds are idle factories uh, by nature, our fallen nature, because we're so inclined to idolatry, um, men in general <clears throat> talk to you when, when they want to talk to you, when they're willing to talk to you about religious matters, they will talk to you in terms of, uh, well, my God wouldn't do this, or my God would do that. They're offended by the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible does not comport with their conceptions of God. And the, the very first thing you, you need to point out to people when they start talking that way is they're idolaters. Right? Their conception of God is itself corrupt. And until they're willing to allow themselves to be instructed in this matter, they have a false notion of what God is and who God is. <coughs> Right? They're unable to come to the knowledge of the truth because they've already determined 
what they think must be true or must be false. You know, and, and very often, you know, this is why people are triggered. This is why people have a very strong, uh, what we would call a strong visceral, visceral reaction when something, when they're confronted with something about God, uh, about what the Bible says, that is so far outside of what they believe that it is absolutely unnerving to them. They just can't handle it. The reason is, rather than allowing themselves to be instructed by uh, Scripture so that they might know the true God, they have constructed an idol God. So, this is again, this is not a vain exercise that Brown is setting before us. He's setting before us a series of, of rules now to help us sort through, to make sure that we don't begin to, to conceive of this God as some other thing than he really is. <clears throat> so, uh, number 250. <coughs> What's the first rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God. Uh, that's the first part of it. And then B, uh, what is our safest course in this? So he says, look, the first thing, first rule to avoid entertaining wrong thoughts about God is to think that we can comprehend in our minds the object of our invocation. He says, remember, God is by nature unsearchable and incomprehensible. He's he's above all that we can think, all that we can conceive. And if we boldly dive into the mystery... Uh, we can end up like the heathen vain in our imaginations. <clears throat> so God, and this is exactly why, by the way, it's necessary for us, although uh, by nature we know there is a God, by nature, uh, particularly with respect to the fall in our nature, we're absolutely morally disqualified from determining anything about this God. And so we can't know who or what this God is uh, from where we sit. Right? If we were to initiate the discussion, and this is, this is the problem, uh, every other religion <clears throat> in the world, in some way or other, <coughs> Uh, it starts with man and tries to work its way back to God. Right? Christianity, the Hebrew religion, Christianity uh, has said no. It, it, God has to reveal himself to man. And if God doesn't reveal himself to man, uh, we are in a, in a very unenviable position because we can't know. And this is the reason. And so we need to keep that in mind. God is... From where we sit, 
unsearchable and incomprehensible, so that if he doesn't reveal something to us, uh, then we don't have certainty of knowledge. We, we shouldn't trust in our own imaginations, because our own imaginations are, by definition, vain. <clears throat> so, <coughs> he goes on to say, our safest course, this is 250B, our safest course is to satisfy ourselves with a view of his back parts, uh, which is to say, we satisfy ourselves uh, with a sight of him in his glorious attributes. Because these are the, the things wherein we find God revealing himself to us. <clears throat> so instead of seeking after his glory or his, the essence of the divine, <clears throat> we ought to be content with taking hold of the various names, styles, titles, uh, attributes, things that have been revealed to us in Scripture. <clears throat> All right, they they are sound guides. <clears throat> and and we need to be very careful that we don't um, when it comes to this, so we don't cherry pick, right? What we like, like the things that we like about God, the Bible says, you know, people, uh, wicked men like the idea that God is love, for example, uh, that God is merciful, right, but they hate all of that stuff that goes with judgment and, and uh, condemnation and justice and so on. They don't like that, right, they, and they don't like the holiness aspect of God. So, you know, they want to cut off really an entire, uh, <clears throat> an entire uh, series of revelations about this God uh, because it doesn't fit their conception. And that's the problem, right? That's exactly what Brown doesn't want us to fall into. Beware of the God of your own conception. Because the God of your own conception is not the true God, it's an idol. And idols, according to the Bible, are made for destruction. <clears throat> and if you cling to your idol, you will be destroyed with your idol. There's so all these people who say, well, you know, if God, I can't believe God would do this, if God did that, you know, they go on and on and on. Um, you know, you can hear them rant. Uh, there are plenty of forums nowadays where you can hear uh, professing atheists and agnostics rant about the God of the Bible. And what, what they're really telling you is they, they are offended by the true revelation of God. And that, all that is is a confession that they are sinful and proud creatures and unwilling to submit themselves to the judgment of the divine. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> All 
51. Uh, what's the second rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God? And part B here, uh, what should we be satisfied to know in this? So the second rule... <coughs> He says, <clears throat> there's one God in three persons, which is the object of our invocation, but it is, um, it, it is a grievous mistake and will lead to wrong thoughts if you think that you can come to a full discovery of this mystery. <clears throat> uh, he says, in fact, you should be satisfied simply to know this, that in the Godhead there are three persons, and that this Godhead which is in three distinct persons, is in fact the object of our invocation. <clears throat> in other words, what we are worshipping is the divine nature. Right? It's revealed to us in three persons. There's a revelation of that in these three persons, uh, but the worship is of that which is divine. <coughs> and that's an important thing uh, to keep in mind. Because as we get a little further into these rules, <coughs> we, we're going to have reason to come back to this and, and consider this rule. Right, so be satisfied in knowing that the Godhead is uh, it subsists in three persons, right? But the object of our devotion is, in fact, the Godhead <clears throat> or the Godhood, the divine nature. Subsisting in three persons. Mm -hmm. Subsisting in three persons. Which is subsisting in three persons. But the three persons are leading us back to... We, this is why we're monotheists, because we're worshipping one God. We're not worshipping three gods. Right? Our, 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 ultimately, our devotion uh, terminates upon the divine nature. <clears throat> in other words, we're not worshipping... <clears throat> we're not worshipping um, the personal distinctions per se we're worshipping the common godhead of the three persons right that's I think what, he, what he's getting at here okay the third rule we're avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God uh, this, let me just give you the third rule before we look at the, these other uh, B through D. The third rule is we should beware of forming or framing ideas 
representation, shapes, and resemblances of this God or of the three persons in the Godhead in our heads or hearts in order to better conceive and understand. <coughs> so, um, when we when people show us as three interlocking circles, uh, you know, they say the Trinity is like a clover. Uh, all these kinds of things. These are teachers of lies. These are, in fact, not good representations. <clears throat> They're not sound representations of of um, uh, the Trinity. Um, in fact, the more we try to picture, uh, you know, make up these representations in our minds, uh, the more problematic uh, our conceptions of God actually become. These aren't like fashion God after a man, like in, in human terms. <clears throat> we are, but by doing that, we're we're necessarily invoking our vain imaginations to conceive of the true God. And if if God wanted to give us a schematic of how He subsists, He could have given us a picture. He didn't. He gave us words. And is that why the, the creeds so often say what God is not? There is a lot of that. Yes. Um, in fact, in the early church, uh, that was very often the approach that they encouraged people to take. It was it was called apophatic uh, <clears throat> theology. It's sort of a negative theology. Uh, and you you work backward, right? God is not like this. God is not like that. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to say what he's not like from where we are uh, than to say what the god the godhead is actually like. So you know God is not unjust, but you know God is just. But we can't <coughs> comprehend the right. But, of but our concept of justice, mm. if it's not informed by Him, is inherently deficient, isn't it? So. <clears throat> the reason why 252b is, of course, the object of our our um, attention here is purely spiritual and, and invisible. And so all mental representations cannot but derogate from his glory right? as much as <clears throat> as much as we could do that. Um, 252c, uh, what was remarkable about the giving of the law? Well, it's remarkable that in the giving of the law, when God gives the law, uh, we're told that they heard a voice, right? They, they hear something. <clears throat> they hear a voice speaking out of the fire and, and all of that, the thunder and but they see no similitude. They don't see any kind of, of representation. 
So the danger, <clears throat> the danger that we encounter if we don't abandon inward imaginations is what we mentioned at the beginning, right? We're, we're in danger of provoking a jealous God to anger. Uh, remember, he's consuming fire. So if we don't worship him acceptably, we're provoking him. And this, <clears throat> this goes along with uh, the general attitude that the Reformed churches have had with respect to the worship of God. Uh, we, we call it the regulative principle, right? But the general gist is this. We are not to worship a God in a way that he has not appointed. Now, most churches, and in, in, this includes, sadly, Protestant churches, uh, they think that if God hasn't prohibited it in the worship of God, it's acceptable. This is why they have all kinds of things they're continually bringing in. You know, this is how you, you end up with the, the uh, liturgies and, and all of the other stuff going on in the Roman church eventually. Right? You, you, that's just, the Roman church has taken the entertainment value and compressed it and made it more religious feeling. <coughs> Protestant churches haven't, you know, so-called Protestant churches haven't figured out uh, that that's perhaps a, a, a more, um, more economical and, and effective way long-term of um, corrupting the worship of God and committing idolatry. Right? So... Uh, they think, you know, God doesn't have to tell us. He didn't. He didn't say we couldn't do this. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't have special music, for example. And and, and our reply is, where did he tell you you can do that? Right. Your vain imagination. See, you're pleased with that, and you assume because you're pleased with that that God would be pleased with that. You think because you like. Uh, the sound of, of the band, <clears throat> the God also is pleased with that. Right? Uh, that's false thinking. It's a violation of the regulative principle. That God didn't tell us to do all of that. You know, it's amazing to me, by the way, you know, people want to use instrumental music. I mean, why don't they use uh, psalteries and sackbuts and the musical instruments you find in the Bible. Right? They, they are using all kinds of instruments that didn't even exist then, but they go back and they'll, they'll appeal to that, uh, these things, for, you know, uh, for their, their practice. Uh, they don't understand the difference between the old Mosaic dispensation and the New Testament worship, right? the spiritual New Testament worship. Uh, they don't understand that these instruments were were given <clears throat> to be used before the Holy Spirit was given in fullness in order to typify the Spirit of God in the worship of God. That's why they're only played, uh, they were only played generally uh, at the sacrifices. And that's very clear in Chronicles. It, you know, instruments are played when, when the sacrifice is going on. The Roman Church, uh, interestingly enough, uh, resisted the use of instrumental music well into the Middle Ages. 
and as late as Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, you know, he recognized that it was Judaizing. In other words, it was going backward to use them in the worship of God. Uh, the, the early fathers all reject them, um, and, and they un- because they understood this principle. Uh, somehow they've worked their way back in to the churches and become part of the norm. Uh, but it's this is this is because there's a failure to abide by this regulative principle. So when we talk about you know the worship of God here and how we conceive of God. <clears throat> failure to, to take these precautions is really to court disaster. God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. He will not give his glory to another. And when we worship him in some way other than his appointment, we are worshiping him um, in, according to our vain imaginations, and it's an idol fit for destruction. And we're going to get, you know, we're going to get destroyed with it. So, <clears throat> um, Brown talks about the fact that we, we. Uh, really cannot conceive of what the Godhead is like. And yet, <coughs> this overboldness uh, to um, <coughs> to take hold of and, and to um, uh, conceive of the Godhead is exactly the point at which all of these corruptions come in. All right, the fourth rule, 253, fourth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God. <clears throat> he says we have to be aware of fixing our hearts too much to any particular apprehension or conception of God under one notion or another. In other words, uh, he's holy, just, righteous, etc., even though we can't understand and comprehend how he is so. Right? We need to be careful that we don't fall upon and fawn upon one attribute rather than all of the attributes. And this goes back to what I said earlier. <clears throat> the world, uh, you know, wicked men tend to like thinking about God in terms of some of his attributes, but they don't like to entertain all of his attributes. And, and Brown is saying, look, by faith we need to uh, take hold of God in all of his attributes. Let all of them inform. Uh, and, and the reason why, 253b, is um, <clears throat> what is infinite cannot be fully comprehended by what is finite. Uh, and what is imperfect and corrupt. Right, so he's infinitely above all of our thoughts, and and yet 
Um, we need to be careful that we don't try to make, you know, this or that thing uh, the attribute of God as, as though <coughs> as though comprehending that attribute <coughs> we comprehend God. Because we don't. Um, the fifth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God is that we need to beware uh, in our thoughts and imaginations that we do not divide the object of our worship and invocation. What he means is this, and this is really getting at the why. <clears throat> Although there are three persons in the one Godhead that we adore, we should not think that we are dealing with three distinct objects of adoration. So whether we name one or more of the persons in the Trinity in our prayers, <clears throat> his point is we're still invocating God, right, in, in that. The object is the same one God. So we, we have to be careful. <clears throat> So there is something to this, and notice a lot of this discussion so far is about the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's something about what the early fathers said, you know, I, I can't think of the three without my thoughts returning to the one, I cannot conceive of the one without, um, without the three appearing before my mind's eye. Right? Um, there needs to be that kind of, I, I would call it uh, fluidity or plasticity. Contemplation. In, in your, well, in, yeah, in your brain, in your mind, you know, your mind's eye when you're praying, uh, when you're meditating upon this sort of thing, <coughs> so that you're not staying on one or the other, <coughs> but recognizing that, you know, I, I don't, I'm not worshipping three distinct things, I'm worshipping one thing, God. Yeah. So, like, the, the, the circumcession in the Trinity, you know, we should be doing the same thing in our reflection of the Trinity, thinking of... Our Father, reflection Son, of the Spirit, Trinity should the constantly... There should be that movement all the right, time. Right, our mind should be moving over it rather than stopping and focusing. Um, it, it, it's sort of like the... Um, I've talked about this uh, in a different context, I think, but the uh, the idea when what happens when you stop when you when you're you're you stop moving your mind stops moving on on this contemplation you become blind you're like the blind this blind man with the elephant right so one thinks that an elephant is is a big hose and another. And thinks that he's a, he's a hunk of rope. Another thinks he's like a, a tree. Another thinks he's like a wall. <clears throat> it just happens to be what part of it you know you you're able to touch. 
but they can't see the whole thing. Right, but like the radical empiricists, and I've talked about them before, uh, their idea, you know, that if I put something in your hand and I don't let you move it, right, you can't look at it, uh, you can't really tell me much about it. But if I tell you, even though you can't look at it, if I tell you you can, you can manipulate it in your hand and move it around, as long as you're moving it, you can begin to describe it to me. It's so that, that um, it's in the movement that there's a revelation. Hmm. That's why it's important that your mind it continues to go back and forth on, on this meditation. Right? Ultimately knowing that we're not talking about three gods, we're talking about one God, one Godhead. <clears throat> All right. Um, the sixth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God. <clears throat> We have to be aware that uh, of thinking that one of the same kind of worship is not due to all the persons in the Trinity. Right. This is we're going to we're going to come back to this um, idea in in a couple of minutes, I think, because there's uh, Brown is even going to say, "Look, we <coughs> we very." Often, and probably usually, uh, address God as Father, uh, address the divinity through, through the Father, uh, by the Son, or in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. Uh, and that, while that's not you know, precluding or, or uh, prohibiting us from sometimes invocating God uh, uh, with respect to the Son or the Spirit, there is an ordinariness to this, and yet his point here is don't don't let that that which is a, another point that we're going to get into. Don't let that uh, make you think that we, for example, worship the Father one way and the Son another way and, and the Spirit another way. Uh, that would be wrong. Because there's one object of devotion that is the divine nature, the Godhead, right? in, in, present in all three of them. <clears throat> so it's the same infinite majesty of God uh, present for us, presenting itself in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it would be a mistake, uh, a very serious mistake, to think that you know we we worship one this way and one that way. Um, that's when I when I said earlier, you know that we the object of our worship are not the personal distinctions. Uh, that's exactly why we have to be very very careful. You know there are people who are. Um, Ostensibly Trinitarian, but they they feed into uh, a lot of 
it's called subordination, uh, subordinationist theology, uh, because they make these kinds of distinctions. You know, we only pray to the Father. We only worship the Father. You know, um, we and, and we do it in this way or that way. That is mistaken thinking. All right. It's one thing to say we ordinarily <coughs> approach God in this way <coughs> because God has revealed himself uh, as an ordered God. You know, that the Father is the first person, the Son is the second, uh, the, the Spirit is the third person. And uh, so there's an ordering. Uh, and that ordering is, uh, I think, ontological. It is... Um, in fact, um, something that pertains to the very being of God, right? But uh, that's that is a logical uh, that's a logical ordering, but it is not a theological ordering in terms of uh, the divine nature, as if. The divine nature was, say, more in the Father. <clears throat> so beware of that. We don't want to. We don't want to um, divide the three persons in such a manner that you know one or or even two perhaps are the objects of worship, but not all three. Right? Because really, what is the object of worship is that divine nature, the Godhead, uh, which is present in each. All right, set the, uh, the, the seventh rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God. <coughs> we should beware... Uh, of imagining that we're, when we're praying to the mediator that we're only giving him some sort of peculiar middle kind of worship inferior to that which is due to God. And we're going we're to start moving into considering now uh, the person and deity of Christ. And the reason... <clears throat> the reason why this is um, a rule is the mediator, our mediator, is true God. So he has the same divine essence and attributes with the Father as to his true Godhead. So we're not giving him this middling kind of worship, <clears throat> some sort of uh, lesser worship. You know, that's a, that's a kind of idea that um, the Roman Church has when it advocates uh, worshiping of saints, with the adoration of the saints. You know, we, we, they, uh, they say, well, there are two kinds of worship. There's Dulia and there's Latria. 
and the, the highest worship belongs only to God. <coughs> but this other worship, well, that that's um, competent to men. That's not what we're talking about, you, we, and you shouldn't think that way. Right? But I think a lot of people do. If I'm if I'm praying to the mediator, I'm not quite praying to God. <coughs> I've sort of missed. Uh, miss the full-on prayer to God. Yeah. <clears throat> do they get that idea, do you think, of worshiping or adoring saints? You know, that, that kind of comes from, you know, uh, paying lawful respect to people like people like the Reformers. Like, you know, like in a way, you respect <coughs> them, like, you know, you, you honor them with certain honors, like you would honor a king or someone who earned something. Did that, that kind of... Uh, I, I think it, I, a, yeah, I think it moved from what what we could consider something that was uh, good, but was a yeah a, a healthy respect and honor into what is now known literally as the cult of the saints. Um, it's it's the worshiping. Um, they're they're praying to them and and all of that. All right, so 256C, what should be noted, noted of the person? Well, this is, this is an important thing about the mediator, right? There are two natures in the mediator. There's only one person. And we're praying unto that person. That person is the eternal Son of God. There's no human person in Jesus. There's a human nature. There's human nature, but the person underlying that nature is the, the person. The person assuming the nature that, that assume the nature is the eternal Son of God. Right, so he's the same God together with the Father. <coughs> and 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 by the way, he points out um, that the assumption of the human nature in no way. derogates from the um, the glory or the splendor of the divine nature. Remember, the human nature is not in what we would call a natural union with the, with the divine nature. Right? The, the bridge is not, they're not, if, you know, they're not in this um, direct communion as like nature to nature but the communion of the natures is in the person of the son of God so it's it's in the person that there is this mediation going on between the Godhead or the Godhood and the manhood Understand, when we say Godhead, we're really talking about Godhood. We're talking about the divine nature. It's like we, we wouldn't say manhead, we would say manhood. <clears throat> but it's really the same, uh, the same concept. All right, 257, the eighth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God and why... So the eighth rule is 
uh, we need to be careful in our worshiping of him of making any precision or abstraction in our minds of his human nature from his divine nature as if, if one nature were to be worshipped and not the other. Now, the reason is because the worship is directed not to the natures, mm. but to the person. Mm. And the person is one and he is God. Right, so be this is one of these things where he's it, it can be tricky. Right, but ultimately remember in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what we're worshiping is the divine nature, and in the person in the of person Jesus, of Jesus, worship the divine nature. It's the divine it's the person. It, it's the divine nature that's the ultimately the object of our adoration because it's the second person of the trinity <coughs> but we can't we cannot adore the divine nature without going through his humanity mm. <coughs> right that's the point of the mediation but the object is the son of god he is god <clears throat> we have to remember that the human nature that he has assumed um, it, it, it consists in and by the Godhead and not of itself that there's no separate human person so when we talk about the man Christ Jesus, we're talking about the Son of God in his incarnation. The assumption of our nature is the assumption of his mediatorial office. <clears throat> it's the same thing. But the assumption of our nature makes no alteration in the person or the object of our worship. Because there's no change in God. There's no change in God. Right, so in 451 of Chalcedon, when they say that that um, in this assumption, in Christ, there are two natures, right, without mixture, without confusion, without uh, without uh, separation these these natures don't they're, they're, because it's a what's called a hypostatic union it's a personal union <clears throat> there is not a direct communion of these natures so that there would be, you know, one would transform the other, uh, that, you know, the, the divine would somehow become less divine or the human would be somehow become more 
uh, than just human. It doesn't happen that way. When Jesus assumes our humanity, Paul says that he, he lays aside all the prerogatives of his divine nature uh, when, he, when he comes on earth. We call it the humiliation. And he lives the life of a true man. He, he doesn't make all these appeals <clears throat> so that when Christ does miracles, right, he, he has to do them like the prophets would do them. By the help of the Spirit. By, by the Spirit, right? He's, he's making an appeal to God. You know, he's, he doesn't do anything of himself, of his, uh, out of his own divine nature, until he raises himself from the dead. Which is why that's a declaration that everything he's done is finished. He's done everything that can be done in the human nature, and he's no longer uh, simply acting in accordance with that humanity. <clears throat> so he, he demonstrates, that's important, you know, it's important because he demonstrates that the problem was not our human nature. The problem was with Adam. Yeah. But he, he still raises himself by, by the Spirit, correct? Raises himself by, by the Spirit, but he, he does, we're, we're told he raises himself. You know, that's that. That's when we see his active. He's actively like reassuming his divinity. I was going to say he's taking upon himself the the, yeah. the divinity that he put aside for a time. Correct? Yes, he's taking it back. Which is why, obviously, like, that when when he appears to the, the disciples, you know, he has that different appearance. He, he can he can hide himself yes. from them and he can just yeah. appear in the middle of them because Every, he's now a, everything changes. Hmm. All right. Uh, the ninth rule. 258. The ninth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God. Is praying to Christ the mediator should not divert our, our thoughts and hearts from making use of him as mediator and as the way to God or for making use by faith of his mediation and intercession. In other words, we um, we should not uh, in praying, even if we pray to Jesus, <coughs> there's a sense in which what he's saying is we're praying to Jesus in the name of Jesus. Okay, don't don't lose sight of the fact that you're you you're still going to have to take hold of and use the mediation. That's the point of the incarnation. Right? That God, um, God has condescended uh, to take upon himself our nature and enter into our reality. <clears throat> and what should be uh, kept in view together here is says our, our meditation by faith um, actually it, it, 
have a typo there, I'm sure. It's his, me his mediation by faith um, and making use of him as a peacemaker in way to the Father uh, should not be so abstracted so that we don't also look at him as the object of the same divine worship as is accorded to God. Right, so although we're taking, what he's saying is, although we're taking hold of him as the mediator, and we recognize that we need his mediation as a way to God, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact he is God. And also worthy of this devotion. He is the object of our devotion as well. <clears throat> Again, this is um, this is really only possible. The way he's talking about a lot of this is really only possible if your mind is in that state of kinesis. There's this there's this motion going on, this continual moving over uh, all of these objects. You're you're not you know you're not you're thinking of Jesus. On the one hand, you know, you, you're thinking of him in your praying as the mediator through whom you have access to God, but you don't ever lose sight of the fact that he is himself the eternal son of God incarnate and therefore the object of that worship that he himself has given us access, acceptable access, to God to worship. By his spirit. By his spirit. <laughs> Sure, we can keep moving all over this, <laughs> and, and he's he's really saying that that, that we're, you know, you, you have to be careful. Right, this is a problem with with um, stopping. You know, again, imagine you've got that thing and you, you, you put something in your hand. If you stop turning it around your hand, all you can feel is you have something in your hand. Right? But the moment you start moving it again, you can tell me things about it. You can start to describe, you know, what it really is. Hold it still. There's not information. The information is coming through through the movement. It's, it's that way. There's a revelation coming. This is precisely why in the early church... Uh, a lot of theologians, for example, would just sit and meditate upon the doctrine of the Trinity or the person and deity of Christ. Because the more you contemplate and have that, <clears throat> have that um, interchanging of, of thoughts, right, that continual flow of thought, the more that's going on, the more you're going to gain insight and understanding. The more it's not going to seem to you like this sort of alien conception. All right, the tenth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God and why... <coughs> he says... This, in this story, he says, look, we normally in prayer, usually, we pitch on the Father by name. 
<clears throat> yet we should be aware of thinking that he alone is the one to whom we're praying. And the reason he says is this, is though any of the persons may occasionally be named, uh, yet we should be aware to fix our minds so on the person named as to exclude the rest. Again, that's that problem of, uh, this is why I keep saying, beware, you know, when you fix your mind, what are you doing? You end up focusing on one thing to the exclusion of all of the other things. <clears throat> and the idea here is, you know, the more attributes of God you, you've um, contemplated, the more uh, you've thought about the intra-Trinitarian relations, uh, the more you're, you're going to avoid falling into that kind of um, uh, unwarranted thinking and dangerous thinking where you begin to think that one person uh, out of the three is somehow perhaps more God or more important or more worthy of your devotion and so on. Right, what's the 11th rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God? 260. And why? Not 260B. A and B. It says we have to be careful that when we pray to Christ, <coughs> we don't imagine in our minds that we're addressing ourselves to him as mediator, and then through him uh, we address ourselves to the Father. And the reason is he's saying when you do that, you're, you're making two addresses in place of one. And each address has its peculiar object. And, and that's really the result of uh, hesitating on Christ mediator, isn't it? Before you move on to the fact that he is, in fact, God. Right, so don't, don't do that. Don't stop praying to you, Jesus, in order that, you, you know, that you'll <clears throat> pray the Father on my behalf. No, because what you really you're, you should really be addressing the Godhead, and when you address Jesus properly, you are addressing the Godhead. You know, he, he says when we pray to the Spirit, make use by faith of His aid and assistance in, approach, in approaching God. We need to be careful that we don't conceive of two addresses first to the Spirit uh, as the one by whom we have access to the Father and then to God, right? <clears throat> so this can go in, in a number of different ways where we can get hung up on one person 
or we we end up with essentially two addresses. And and here's the problem with two addresses in prayer or three addresses in prayer. You know, we're actually beginning to court like bitheism or tritheism. We're we're instead of having one object of our devotion, we're in danger of having two or three objects of devotion. It's polytheism. And that's the religion of the heathen. Okay, so we need to be careful. Very, very careful. We don't let ourselves uh, fall into that sort of thing. Alright, 261. What is the twelfth rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God and why? He, he says we need to be careful here in mentioning Christ in prayer. We have to beware of thinking that Jesus is more easy to be spoken to than the Father. That he's less severe and rigid. <clears throat> and that's one of the ones where, you know, I have to pinch myself and say, Brown died in 1679. Right? And that sounds like a warning that is... Uh, so apropos to our current situation that it, it, it it's almost unbelievable that he um, foresaw this. I suppose there were people who thought that way then. Uh, we are infested with people who think that way now, right? Uh, they, and and you <clears throat> you get this in different ways. Um, there's this general sense in a lot of churches that the God of the New Testament is nicer than the God of the Old Testament. Uh, that the new God is is um, kind and loving. That Old Testament God, you know, it's almost like I've, I've described him to people, you know, who think this way. They think of him as sort of God emeritus, right? He's he's the mean God that was over the Jews, but now that Jesus has come on the scene, uh, it's, you know, it's peace and love. <clears throat> and so Jesus is almost the hippie God, right? <clears throat> uh, that that's, that's the idea. It's, it's actually, and the reason this is so wrong, of course, is um, <laughs> when, when we pray to Christ, we're praying to God. And the essential properties that are in the Son or in the Father and vice versa. So the Father is not more rigid than the Son because God is one. And this idea that <clears throat> the idea that the Father <clears throat> the Father is going to be offended but Jesus we can tell him anything. right? Uh, the Father is that God sitting back there uh, behind the curtain with the big stick. But if I approach him through Jesus, well, then, uh, you know, everything is, is um, fine. Now, there's, there's a sense in which uh, that's true if we're talking about mediation. But the mediation of Christ is not only a New Testament phenomenon, right? 
it is something which existed under the Old Testament um, in anticipation of Christ coming and dying. The, the fact is that Old Testament believers were saved in the same way that New Testament believers are. The difference is their faith was in the Christ who was to come, whereas our faith is in the Christ who has come. All right? That's it. There's really nothing different. They were not saved by works that they had done. They weren't saved by all the elaborate ceremonies in the Mosaic economy. Those were all designed to point them, uh, point out to them what Messiah would do when he came, what it would look like uh, when he was on earth, and also uh, there are a number of things hinting at the pouring out of the Spirit of God, right? And, and the idea of the, the gospel uh, spreading out beyond just that little piece of land called Palestine, uh, going into all of the world. <clears throat> Nonetheless, the object uh, was the same. So if we were simply talking about mediation, you know, that would be one thing, but we're, we're really not. A lot of people, I think, really believe, and, and this is, you know, they, they will convey this in different ways. They'll tell you when you say, well, the Bible says, that's the Old Testament. Right? What are they saying? That God was meaner then. You know, if I say to you, that's the Old Testament, I might be indicating to you that there may be something typical or shadowy about it that you need to take into account. Right? But it doesn't mean that we're dealing with a different God. That all of a sudden the rules have changed. You know, There's a different uh, conception of justice and mercy, which is, I think, very often how people tend to think. And that's not just an error. Uh, that is something subversive of Christianity. It's, it's really to, to encourage people. And this is why I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of groups don't even encourage Christians to read the Old Testament. Because they, they see it as containing, uh, generally speaking, a different religion altogether. And that tells you already they, they are reading the Bible from a, not just a wrong point of view, but from a totally corrupt point of view. The apostles themselves tell you again and again what they're telling us in the New Testament they've gotten from the Old Testament. Right? So this idea that there's this radical disconnect, is it's a false narrative. <clears throat> and to a large extent we can thank um, we can thank dispensationalism um, for that point of view. Anyway. 13th rule for avoiding entertaining wrong thoughts about God, 262. Uh, this actually gets to uh, something I just alluded to, which is when we approach God in prayer, we have to be aware of conceiving of God absolutely or out of Christ. <coughs> We are to conceive of him now as in Christ, uh, 
Christ is our propitiation. He was typified by the mercy seat placed above the ark. He points us to Exodus 25-21 and Hebrews 9-5. The reason this is to be avoided, 262b, is our capacities are finite and can't comprehend what is simply infinite. That's why the Lord, out of his wonderful love and condescension, approached us in his Son and made himself accessible to sinners in Christ. That's why he took upon himself our nature. So again, people think that they can get to God apart from Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Right? No man comes to the Father but by me. Anybody who tells you that you know, they're spiritual, uh, they are religious, or they, uh, they worship God, if they don't believe in the mediation of Christ, um, they're not, not only are they not Christian, they're, they're no different than the pagans. We're either going to approach God in our own persons or in the person of Christ. Those are our only choices. And in our own persons, what we're going to do is what he's been warning about in this whole chapter. We're going to begin to set up vain imaginations. We're going to begin to conceive of God in ways um, and, and under similitudes that are absolutely prohibited by the Bible. In Christ, God has condescended to reveal himself in a manner that we are able to comprehend. By by entering into creation in our nature, God shows himself in a manner that is, in fact, comprehensible. So this idea that, you know, we can approach God outside of Christ um, is to approach God as he is a consuming fire. And outside of Christ, he is, uh, God is the definition of hell. All right. So, to keep us from these mistakes, he gives us a couple of things that we should do. First thing, 263. First thing he says is, have the truths revealed in the word concerning God, the mystery of the Trinity, fixed in our hearts. Our apprehensions of the Trinity should be according to the word of truth and that uh, that's not going to be prejudicial to uh, to our case. So that's the first thing. Right, 264 
The second thing we would do well to keep uh, to keep us from these mistakes. is to have right apprehensions of condescensions of love and free grace in the gospel dispensations and of Christ the mediator in his person and office. Offices, really. So to have right apprehensions of condescensions of the love and free grace which are held forth in the gospel and of Christ our mediator in his offices, the prophet, priest, and king. <clears throat> and by the way, you would think that these kind of things would be um, on the short list of, of um, the instructions that the churches would want to give to people, but they're not anymore. And they're not because too many of the churches don't use catechisms anymore. The catechism uh, is a good way to, to get these basic apprehensions that we're talking about. All right, third. The third thing that we would do well uh, to keep us from these mistakes, 265. Uh, we should have our hearts ballasted with a sense of God's greatness, majesty, and glory. And if we were impressed with fear, awe, and reverence, <clears throat> we would be much less inclined <clears throat> to go after those vain imaginations, wouldn't we? That would be better for everyone. And the last thing that we're going to talk about here in this chapter, uh, 266, the three practical beliefs which if the heart improved would keep us uh, from vain imaginations and mistakes. So the three, the three things he says that would keep us is, first of all, God alone is the object of divine worship. And we have to pray to this God who is one in essence, but three in persons. B uh, that Christ as mediator as God man is to be made use of by faith as the ground of our access to God Third is that the Holy Spirit, as purchased by Christ, 
In other words, the, the Holy Spirit, um, with respect to the economy of redemption, the covenant of grace, uh, the Holy Spirit is purchased by Christ and promised and sent by the Father to help our infirmities, that he be made use of by faith, so that by his assistance we can come to God through Christ. is if we would keep these things in mind and the reason the reason for this is the first thing right, that, that God is one God one in essence three in persons Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that is keeping a proper object before us for our devotion the second, regarding Christ the Mediator, is keeping us focused on the fact that we cannot approach God apart from the mediation of Christ. That is, apart from the condescension that God himself has made for the benefit of fallen mankind. The third, the emphasis on the Spirit, um, is reminding us and, and keeping our own spirit, if you will, uh, at a distance and, and keeping it um, under, uh, uh, under that kind of um, constraint that we, we are aware that the, the motions of the natural man are not going to be sufficient to carry our petitions to God. Right? We need the assistance of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit has been given for that very purpose, among other things, but for that purpose as well. Right? So that we need to seek the motions of the Spirit in praying to God, if we would pray to God aright. So, so right there, that's kind of like an example of maybe praying to one person in particular, remembering the other two. You pray to the Spirit mm -hmm. to strengthen your faith, in, your faith in Christ so you can approach the Father. Pray for all. Yes. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right, so uh, those, are, those are the mistakes that Brown doesn't want you to make with respect to God when you're praying to Him. Uh, the summary at the end, I think, pretty well takes up um, the overarching concerns of his, the, the points that we, we covered in this chapter. Uh, with that in mind, in chapter thirteen, in chapter thirteen, we're gonna we're gonna break up into a couple of weeks. Uh, but in chapter thirteen, we're going to be looking at the right manner of prayer, uh, enforced from the fact that it's God to whom we pray. So we'll be addressing that over the course of a couple of weeks.